to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. The refrain, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there, was essentially a paraphrase of an exchange between Alice and the Cheshire Cat in Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. It is particularly apt in a sponsorship sense when... Even today, we see so many sponsorships that seem bereft of objectives and goals. Those sponsorships are always set up for the comment, we just don't feel like this sponsorship is working for us. Feeling shouldn't come into it at all. Most of us would be familiar with the name Peter Drucker, the man known as the father of modern management and one who wrote 39 business management books. Even in today's vastly different business environments, he is still widely regarded as the greatest management thinker of all time. And one of his most famous quotes is, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And today, teams and budgets are under so much pressure to produce more and get better results with less. So it becomes pretty obvious why measurement is so important in sponsorship, yet many don't do it well or at all over and above the feeling of how it is all going. Welcome, I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and you're listening to episode 68 of Inside Sponsorship, where our guest today to take us inside best practice sponsorship management is Ian Davidson, Head of Events and Sponsorship at Inotion Worldwide, a company that has worked with the likes of Heineken, Kia, Hyundai, and Samsonite. But now it is shout-out time. Great to hear from a few listeners between episodes this time around. So a shout-out, firstly, to Paul Slatter, who is Vice President at Live Sport Technologies, where he spends his days growing an innovative sports technology business focused on the youth sports market in China. And Paul connected with me on LinkedIn and simply said, I enjoy the podcast, keep up the great work. Good to hear from you, Paul. The second was from Cameron Glover, who also connected with me on LinkedIn with the message, just a quick note to thank you for the incredible work you do on the podcast. Since its inception, it has become compulsory listening. The insights are great, although I'd love to hear more about the commercial slash charity crossover of trends and initiatives. Cam is from Interplast, a not-for-profit organization working to empower their neighbors in Asia through surgical treatment for patients and training for local medical staff. Thanks for getting in touch. Cam, I think you make a good point about the commercial slash charity crossover. I'm sure you've listened to our previous episodes where we welcomed Abby Clements to discuss all things not-for-profit sponsorship. But if anyone else is looking for some great advice, then be sure to check those episodes out. They are episode nine and episode 40. But if anyone has a desire to hear from a particular not-for-profit or charity, then please just let me know and I'll see if I can make that happen for you. Or to be honest, any topic or guest really just let me know before we hear from ian davidson at inotion worldwide we catch up with daniel ferguson hill core software's commercial manager australasia to discuss his latest blog which is titled where should the money go in the sponsorship deal or in the leverage here's daniel Daniel, welcome to the show. We obviously speak to lots of brands right around the world who have some amazing sponsorships, are doing some some great work, have great people in positions, but we, we get asked a fairly, what we think is an obvious question around, do we need to spend over and above our sponsorship fee to maximize the deal's return? Now, it might seem like a an obvious answer. Yes, of, of course you do, but we're going to delve into it a little bit deeper, aren't we? Yeah, and I was actually sitting with a brand here in Australia who, just to put it in context for viewers, I think they spend roughly in excess of 25 mil across six different properties. And that question came from a, a CMO and the head of sponsorship. And I thought, it, it stumped me, knocked me for six. And I thought, what a question. So, you know, when we got digging into it, it was a when you're signing off on a sponsorship deal, it's a genuine challenge that brands face in today's landscape. You know, do they put the whole war chest into the deal or do they keep some aside to leverage it? And the reason we wanted to explore this was simple because the more brands we, we keep working with at core, uh, the more we keep getting asked that question is, where do we see the money go? Is it is it in the deal or is it in the leverage? So for me, straight away, the question really needs to be answered by whatever gives you the best return on objective. This metric is really gaining momentum in sponsorship measurement. However, it allows brands to look past a really traditional return on investment model and instead evaluate how every asset works together. Brands who are in the sponsorship game should have a very 
It should have really clear visibility uh, on what provides them with value and what doesn't. Um, if they can see what's working and, and what isn't, it should make the decision really, really easy. So, but it, with that said, it's still a, a current battle many brands go through during the budgeting cycle each year. And occasionally, they can completely forget to include these costs when pitching <laughs> internally for the sponsorship spends. You know, you get caught up in the whole moment. It's really exciting. You go, oh, whoops, didn't include that. But, you know, look, as, as our industry evolves, we're seeing more importance being placed on leverage spend, how it's included, how it's calculated, allocated, and eventually how it's spent. And a quick caveat or a lesson around that for rights holders who are working toward that revenue number, don't forget to factor that brands will have a leverage spend when you're structuring deals. So don't go really expensive and sort of pitching that you will deliver absolutely everything because they're going to want to do something over and above as well. So our industry is full of opinions. However, the fact is that every brand is going to be different. Some may spend one-to-one on sponsorship leverage. Some may not even spend over above uh, the deal cost at all. Okay, so that's a great intro. Let's have a look at both sides of the fence. So what is your take on both sides in terms of where the money should focus? Should it focus in the deal or in the leverage of the deal? Let's start with looking at in the deal. What are your thoughts? So there's a genuine argument that if a brand has negotiated and structured their sponsorship deal effectively, they shouldn't need to spend over and above. Uh, keeping the spend in the deal suits brands who have objectives like brand awareness, brand positioning, or brand recall, because these are all promotional-based objectives, meaning that they're used to trigger recall or association with a specific property. The assets that we often see being used uh, with these objectives include things like naming rights, signage, and dig- digital advertising. When a brand keeps the money uh, or keeps the spend in the deal, uh, it also works for them who just want to use their contracted assets rather than buying new ones across other advertising and, and media platforms. And, and an example for that is if we see a brand uh, with a new product launching soon, they should be looking at all of their unused sponsorship assets to see uh, if they can promote the launch through those channels rather than paying for anything additional or above what they've already got. And this is where we start to see a lot more of the phrase asset utilisation and and it's sort of bouncing around a lot of agencies at the moment. And this is simply because brands get to the end of the term and they realise that there's a stack of unused assets, which for the brand means that there's a hell of a lot of cash still sitting there on the table. So again, we see the importance of being able to have really clear visibility over all the assets, whether they've been delivered or not. So for rights holders who are listening, if your brands aren't using the assets go on the front foot and move a portion of the spend towards assets that they are using so that you don't get a nasty surprise at the end of the term. Let's say that a brand, a sponsor, and also a rights holder are working well together and they're utilizing all of their assets and the focus is potentially on leveraging that sponsorship deal. In what sort of circumstances should we be focusing more of the spend on the leverage rather than just the deal? So on on the complete contrary and it's almost like the the old university days where you you do a a paper and you've got to argue before and against and then decide at the end brands who place more spend in the leverage are typically looking at engagement-based objectives Um, these include community engagement networking generating sales you'll notice these often also come with assets like use of ip activation money can't buy experiences it's important to remember that with this specifically, that the right holder is not solely responsible for delivering the outcome of that or a contracted asset. Those that think they are often see their sponsorship efforts fall flat and realise really minimal return, which is a huge contributor to non-renewals. Right holders own the assets and provide access via the sponsorship fee. And look, if they're good, they would have already matched the asset with a specific objective and also pushed the brand to document a success metric around it. And this is really where we start to see leverage coming into play. And for the record, I'm a huge believer in putting the money in leverage. Typically, this spend will include things like activation costs, food and beverage costs, staffing, production, design, the the list goes on. It's huge. If a brand solely relies on its sponsorship assets to fulfill its marketing objectives, it relinquishes all ability to influence outcomes in its favour. And a great example of this, which we've all seen, is if a sponsor uses its marketing budget to buy signage and expects sales to increase by 50% or 100%, it just doesn't happen because there's no connection being made 
between the asset and the customer. The best users of sponsorship utilize their contracted assets to further leverage and enhance uh, the promotional efforts of their existing marketing mix, simply because it provides the opportunity to access and engage with an audience that that brand may have otherwise not have been able to reach or even afford to reach. And this is why we'll often see branded assets or campaigns that mirror general advertising and branding efforts. So. It creates a, a level of consistency and helps reinforce a, a message across multiple touch points. In my opinion, whilst successful leverage can be achieved with a really well-executed activation, it's usually only seen when a brand nails its use of IP first. And one of the best examples of late where we've seen a, a, a brand successfully leverage its sponsorship is Kia during the Australian Open a couple of months ago. Using IP from its Tennis Australia sponsorship deal, Kia created a, an awesome campaign around their Serato model. Uh, not only did the exercise include a TV media campaign that featured Rafael Nadal, the imagery was also used throughout print, digital, and across all of their activations in Melbourne's Federation Square. So technically, all they had to do was pay for an IP-based sponsorship with some activations, and the rest was actually leveraged through activities outside of the core deal. The fact that Kia then went and combined this with efforts that they were doing during the tournament uh, only enhanced their results massively. I think that's a, a great example in Kia and, and AO certainly did some fantastic work. I think you might have alluded to it a little bit earlier, but what's your politician's answer, Daniel? What's your, <laughs> it depends because everybody's different and it depends on the situation answer. Yeah, look, it's your overall sponsorship spend needs to align with what you genuinely want to achieve from the deal. Uh, you need to clearly articulate your expected return on objective and identify which which assets are, are going to help you achieve this so that I'm not sitting on the fence. If you've got engagement-based objectives, spend on leverage. If you've got promotional-based objectives, pour more money in the deal. It's It's that simple. I think there's some great points there, not just because it's largely focused on how brands should be focusing and spend their money, but also lots of flags and, and things for rights holders to focus on as well. And, and an important point you made throughout there in the middle somewhere was that if rights holders have gotten a brand and a sponsor to align assets to objectives and actually push them to document some success metrics, then everybody's going to be on the right page, which is what we all want. So because when it comes to renewal time uh, or the end of an agreement, it, it all goes very smoothly. Daniel, you got any trips planned that you want to give people a, a heads up about? No trips, but we're, we're at the uh, Business of Sports Summit in Sydney early April. So if anyone's going along, make sure you come and say hello. Very good. I'm sure you'll have some uh, some lollies or some business cards to hand out for people. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll find something. Excellent. And listeners, if you want to read through Daniel's thoughts in detail, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the resources section and the blog tab under that where you can access all of that. Thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks, mate. As I said at the top of the show, a few famous quotes are very relevant to the topic we discuss with our guest today. They are, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Ian Davidson is head of events and sponsorship at In Ocean Worldwide with 19 overseas operations and over 2,000 employees. InOcean is a true global marketing communications company that provides total marketing solutions for their clients. The word InOcean is a combination of innovation and ocean and embraces the company's core vision to become, in essence, an ocean of innovation. Now, innovation can be scary for a lot of people. It includes risk, it includes change, and sometimes a big leap of faith. As such, setting objectives and goals and then measuring them becomes vital. Ian Davidson is someone who knows the space well, having worked with such innovative brands as Red Bull, Gillette, Samsung, Unilever across Dove Men Plus Care and Rexona, Standard Chartered with Liverpool Football Club, Manulife, Lion, Ansel, Cricket Australia and DHA on their partnership with the Canberra Raiders. Here's Ian. Ian Davidson, welcome to the show. We're going to chat about measurement in sponsorship and we usually measure something to see if we have reached or we're tracking well towards a goal that we've set. Tell us, did you set any New Year's resolutions and if so, how are you tracking towards them? 
Uh, well, I guess as far as New Year's resolutions, I said I'd eat less biscuits at work. Um, there's a jar in office that I can't stay away from about three o'clock every day, and by four o'clock it's looking pretty empty. So I guess as far as tracking that success, it's not looking that good so far. What's your favourite biscuit? Um, I kind of like the ones with the chocolate in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but they're usually gone pretty quickly, so you've got to get in there fast. <laughs> Very good. Ian, what's been your career pathway up to joining InOcean Worldwide? So you probably guess my accent that I'm not from Australia. Um, I came to Australia from Scotland in, in 2010. Um, before that, I was working. I started my career agency side and then moved into client side with Red Bull working events capacity um, in quite an unusual role, I suppose, um, locally, first of all, in Scotland, finding partnerships for Red Bull in the space of sports and culture and, and fashion, I guess, uh, trying to find ways to leverage the brand in a, a local capacity that didn't actually involve paying any rights. We used to sponsor events by way of providing contra and support. So it was, it was a really good fun role. I did that for a couple of years and moved to London for a year, worked in there events and team working on the big brand events, which was Rebel X Fighters, Rebel Air Race, Rebel Flood Tag, uh, which happened in Australia recently. That was a fantastic role that, that really taught me about event production, leveraging a big brand. Like that was a real privilege as well. The, the budgets we got to work with were phenomenal. The, the type of work that we did was quite unique. I kind of wanted a change from there and had never really worked abroad and was curious by Australia. Uh, and took the leap in 2010, and that took me into a role at Octagon. I mean, fresh off the boat, I didn't know anything about Australian sport. And, um, you know, Octagon are an agency that they're really sort of sports marketing focused. So that was a lesson in what's NRL all about, what's this AFL stuff, <laughs> what does that involve? And um, I worked on Telstra with Surf Lifesaving. We don't really have that in Scotland either. It's just not, it's just not a, a, an option. So, but that was fantastic, and I loved that um, coming into Australia for the first uh, first time and working in those, those types of events was was great. And and that was you know cutting my teeth into sponsorship management, representing the brand to deliver a major partnership, and seeing how that worked, and learning the intricacies and, and nuances of how to represent a brand correctly, drive the right shoulder, and deliver a clear brand message through through assets provided by. I worked with the ARU quite closely across Samsung, as well as for Dove Men as well, with a piece with David Pocock. And um, later on in that path, the career path was down the charter in Liverpool Football Club as well. And so it was quite a breadth of experience that, that um, I, I did across my five years with those guys, moving into Havas Sports and Entertainment and working with Gillette uh, to really enter the Australian market again for the first uh, or for the first time, sorry, and they wanted to own the sport, so that was that was an exercise in taking a, an American brand and trying to leverage it into an Australian culture, which was a real challenge and, and, and one that kind of represents some of the work I'm, I'm most proud of. We also worked with Blueprint across you know, delivery of their sponsorship campaign across a breadth of sponsors, Tour Down Under, Week Big Skids Triathlon, Cricket Australia again as well. So that was, again... A fantastic experience and one that I'm really proud of that led me to where I'm right now at um, in Ocean. That's an impressive CV and an amazing list of events you've been involved in. And I've personally always been a, a big fan and loved how Red Bull's taken the approach of, of owning their own events rather than looking for existing events. And as you alluded to just then, now you are the head of events and sponsorship at InOcean Worldwide. Tell us about what that role entails, the team that you lead, and, and some of the projects that you and your team are working on. Yeah, sure. So the, the clients, we, our key clients are Kia, Hyundai, and Genesis, all Korean-owned car brands. Um, we are one big family. We all kind of operate under the the same family businesses, if you like. Um, we sit across Kia and Hyundai, who are competitors. We have two separate teams from an account um, point of view in terms of how that above line is delivered. But we manage all of their all of their creative um, across 360, really. My team is uh, tasked with managing the events and sponsorship side, of which they represent probably some of the biggest properties in Australia. For Kia, that's tennis in the Australian Open, uh, GWS for AFL, Canterbury Bulldogs, and then Western Australian Football League. And then Hyundai are title sponsors of the A-League, so that's a massive piece for them. 
and then they've got partnerships right through um, A-League and uh, with the uh, Celtic Socceroos, West and Matildas, and then they touch on AFL as well with their Carlton and Brisbane Lions sponsorship. So the breadth of um, the work that happens is, from my point of view and from what I do, is, is really exciting. And we've got Genesis as well, which is their which is the luxury luxury mark that sponsors the um, Australian Open in the uh, with the golf. So it's 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 a lot to manage, a lot to think about, and I've got a great team under me. We we have, I would say, some of the best creative minds I've worked with in the industry to to deliver those 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 partnerships, those sponsorships, and we're constantly finding trying to think of new ways to do that in a in an unexpected way. Sometimes sponsorship can be a quite sort of firm parameters of what you have to leverage against the assets that you're provided, but you've got to think beyond that. You've got to think outside of outside of that box and try and do things a little bit differently. As I said in the intro, we are here to focus on sponsorship measurement. So let's set the scene nice and early from a measurement perspective. What's been your favourite sponsorship deal to work on and why? So I mentioned Gillette and Cricket Australia earlier, and that one comes to mind because... From my experience, and we have been with Notion for about four months, which isn't long enough to really delve into the depths of any of their partnerships in too much detail. So I wanted to touch on this one because it's interesting from start to finish. Where we started with that brand was, as I mentioned before, an American brand. They thought that they were, their own perception of how they're seen in the market was they were a bit irrelevant, that they were obviously American-owned coming into Australian sport is something you need to be wary of. So they were very smart in how they approached that and in the process that we followed was to actually go into the consumer research. We actually did some focus groups to understand what was the sentiment of the brand to inform how we would go into the market, not just which sport, but what the tone would be and how we could make sure that we weren't too dividing. You know, we wanted to really sort of resonate with the Australian market. That's, that requires sensitivities in the, the research that we did around that was was key to sort of unlocking the messaging and the tone we went to market with in the end. What that research taught us was that their their you know thoughts around being irrelevant were actually right. That they would seem to be actually quite arrogant because it's a big American brand pushing above line creative that's led by America, not local. Then it's, it has that kind of sense of it's not necessarily that that relevant but also it's seen as just kind of quite forceful and the tone wasn't right it wasn't what we wanted to use in the platform for going into a, a major partnership they knew they wanted to go into sport but they weren't really sure where and how to do that so as i said that was really key to sort of outlining how we would go into building that that partnership and building that sponsorship and doing so in a way that was going to be honest and authentic and that's, that's what you've got to keep in mind is you know, consumers are not, are not stupid. And when you enter into the world of sponsorship and sports, especially, you've got to be authentic. You know, that's somewhat, you know, sport for the consumers represents their weekends and their time after work. So to enter into that space, you need to, you need to um, be sensitive of the fact that this is their, this is their passion. And um, they're not there to be sold to, they're there to enjoy their sport. Um, and a good partnership should be one or approached in the sense of what can brand do to, to bring something to that sport and make that better for them, not just what can I sell and how can I sell. So that was kind of how we went into that. So from a measurement point of view, we went in with a fairly low benchmark, if you like, a, a low brand metric perhaps in terms of the authenticity that Gillette had at the time two years later. Um, they're two years now into that that deal having just closed the second year of the um, cricket season. I know the brand metrics are are, are considerably higher and I can't talk to exactly what they are, but the um, the work that the team did around that to um, find a real role for the brand and uh, what we ended up doing was getting the, the consumer closer to the game. Everything we did was about getting them closer to their, their passion point and um, physically getting closer to the cricket by winning tickets and finding ways for player appearances, thinking about the broadcast differently. How do we get the um, the brand message delivered in a way that enhances the viewing experience by by um, thinking about camera angles, working with the Channel 9 team. Everything was about um, the viewer and the fan um, at home, which is which is kind of where the industry is kind of going now. It's, it's, it's moving away from just the off-the-shelf assets, but thinking about how do you put the fan at the very centre and the testament to that is in the 
results and the measurement that came out of that. You spoke there about brands really needing to be authentic in their sponsorships, and I think that's a given. A lot of people know that. But there's also the pressure from maybe upper management, maybe from accounting, to really drive the numbers, whether that's impressions or, or sign-ups. Do you feel day-to-day that, that they are sometimes mutually exclusive or that, or that they are clashing sometimes? I suppose if you're talking about driving numbers, then you would be assuming that, that that's directly correlated with a, a sales objective. I mean, if your metrics that you're measuring lead to sales generation, then yes, you'll feel pressure from the CFO to, to deliver on that. But quite often, sponsorship can be about brand building, which is harder to measure purely in, in sales volume. It's, it's what you measure at the end by way of avidity to a brand. So those types of conversations tend to be less finance focus and you, let, you get less pressure from your are you selling enough units and um, it's more has the brand metric grown off the back of your activity and yes will be performance indicators against content viewed and, and and all of your campaign deliverables will ladder up to that but it's um it's less of a for me i think that's probably less of a finance conversation the example that you gave before about Gillette, that's a really positive example, obviously. But in a general sense, what happens when brands don't measure and track their sponsorship effectively? Is it all doom and gloom? And is it only ever a matter of time before the brand comes to the rights holder and says, you know what, we're just not feeling that this is working? Yeah, look, it is important. It's important because you need to understand the value of the, the sponsorship from the brand's perspective. What the rights holder might tell you is is maybe not the same as what you would perceive, based on the way you measure it or the perception of that that value from the brand the brand's point of view. You need to have a firm hold on what's the value of that investment to me, so that when I come and talk to the CFO at the end of the season and, and we want to renegotiate, I've got the information I need to have that conversation. Say, look, this is this is an important part of our our offering. It's an important part of our activity this year and, and it delivers on X and X and represents X value. If you can't say that, then you're not going to lock the fund that you need to go into your, your next year. And similarly, it makes it much harder to have that, that conversation with the sponsorship, the, the rights holder, sorry, on what you're going to pay them. You know, It's really a, a tool in that negotiation process that you need to arm yourself with the data that will um, allow you to justify the number you might you might put on the table. So it, it, it's really important from, from a financial point of view it's really important from a performance point of view as well as you as you go through your your sponsorship through the season or through your activity. You need to be reactive. You need to know how things are performing. You need to know where you make adjustments. And without visibility on on performance, it's it's you're shooting in the dark, really. It is popular for industry professionals to spook either online or at conferences that brands don't measure sponsorship enough. What's your take? Do you, in a general sense, agree or, or disagree with that? I think look, now people are pretty savvy at, at, at measurement in terms of not just sponsorship but across the board, and that comes off the back of you've got a lot more metrics at hand, everything's a lot more digital. It's easier to, to get a read on things. Um, so I don't, I don't think that in the industry doesn't measure enough i think it i think it has to and i think it does it does happen i think to what extent and what degree depends on the resources you have available what agencies you work with how much resource you can invest in and it does take time often to do it properly to measure sponsorship effectively can be a timely and then expensive i guess expensive if you to go right into it and think about broadcast metrics and how often your brand is seen on screen can can take a lot of time but it's certainly worth it if you had the budget and um, and the will to do so. We're seeing a growing need for sponsorship deals to be executed by multiple sub-strategies for each category of benefits a brand might receive in a sponsorship deal. So, for example, branding, activations, or experiential, etc. How does a brand start that process? How do they approach it and, and keep on top of it when, unfortunately, there's still lots of rights holders out there trying to position predetermined packages? I mean, it, it comes down to, this is an obvious answer, but it comes down to being clear on your objectives um, and building out your assets against that. If you've got a clear understanding of what you want to achieve with the sponsorship, you can cherry pick the assets 
that will deliver against that. So, for example, if you're looking to generate sales leads, then you probably want assets that will allow you to capture consumer data and have a conversation and build a CRM strategy around. So your digital assets, that might be a content piece that feeds into that. If you're looking to build awareness and you're working with a broadcast deal, then obviously signage is really important and you want to look at those assets that will give you the maximum reach but don't necessarily give you the um, uh, maybe a deep engagement. And it's it's about finding a balance um, and understanding where your where your your, your preference is, um, and building as I say, building a, an asset suite against that. A good rights holder will be able to help you cherry pick those, and should really be thinking about how do you customize their offering versus giving you an off the off the shelf solution. You spoke about cherry picking the the right assets aligned under objectives. That you're you're really clear on that. We've got the assets, we've got the objectives. We then we're talking about measurement, so we then need to set some goals and some KPIs against each of those assets. How does a brand go around creating those initial KPIs for a sponsorship deal under each asset? And I'm particularly interested in what some of the most important metrics brands should really be measuring around some of those benefits that you might see for the foreseeable future, maybe over the next year or so, as being really important for brands? So I think, first of all, I think it's, I think the industry is moving, I think I mentioned before, moving away from an off-the-shelf approach and thinking about a more um, custom offering from a rights holder to a, a prospective brand, a good rights holder will have an eye on what a brand will benefit from. They'll work together on a brief, they'll work together on what objectives are and and choose those assets that are going to most effectively leverage that proposition to the fan. I think gone in the days of uh, an off-the-shelf offering where you'd be given, this is our suite of assets at X level and this is all you get. Uh, it's also an opportunity for uh, the rights holder to consider an additional sale if you like the really big rights holders are very good at that they're very good at extracting more value from a potential brand by add-ons or going outside of the, the initial offering so i think it's about working together with the rights holder and thinking about how that can that can come together really nicely in terms of isolating your metrics against those assets and which are the most important assets and give you a read on I guess the performance of the sponsorship is is how engaged is that fan or is that consumer through a particular asset. So looking at ticket sales, for example, will tell you how popular the code is, for example. That's an obvious one. Viewer numbers will tell you how engaged the fans are. And that might that might vary through the season. Obviously if the team has a bad season or if the code goes through a lull or it crashes with another game, then you're gonna see a drop off and that's bad news for the rights holder. But it's really interesting for the brand. And again, armed them with information they need to go into the next season. Having your eye on those kind of metrics is is really important. And that will obviously in turn, you would expect if ticket sales dropped and you're going to see your engagement numbers drop and your experiential on ground. And if broadcast numbers drop, then it's going to affect your views in terms of your media buy and all has a knock-on effect. So I guess having the ability, the time and the presence of mind to take a step back and look at those numbers and frequently, and do so with the rights holder, do, do so with your, your media team, all the channels you have available to you to create a live read on the performance of that sponsorship at any given time is really important. Do you feel at the moment that there are some assets that have maybe been really popular in the past or, or very successful for brands, but are now trending towards being not so popular and maybe not offering as much value as they have in the past? No, I think that's a difficult one to answer because it does depend on the brand and the, and the objectives. What's right for one brand is not right for another, obviously. I think that there will always be a place for signage. It's you know, it's maybe not that complex, or it's, it's you're always going to need to have that visibility and at a, a, a brand visibility level. Signage will always play a role. I think that the assets that are standing out versus those that are being left behind are those that deliver on the depth of engagement. And that comes down to things like your player appearances and access to athletes, because that talks to the fan passion point. So it's again about how do you, how do you put the fan at the center of the experience and make their, make their day better. We always talk about the ultimate measure of success. If that uh, brand is not in the sport anymore, 
And if at the end of the season you didn't renew the deal, would the fan care? Would the fan notice? And I think that's the ultimate measure of success. Is if the answer to that is no, then we haven't done our job properly. And the opportunity there is to cement yourself and ingrain yourself in that experience so to the point where if you weren't there, you'd really be missed your, your part of the experience as much as, as much as the game is. And that can take time and it can, it can take a, a lot of effort to, to get to that point. But that's, that's really the goal you should be looking for. So I don't think there's necessarily any assets that should be forgotten about. I think it should all be considered as, as one. Um, but the lens to put on it of is, is perhaps what are the, the assets that will help me ingrain myself in that fan experience and that, that viewing experience. So when we are considering all of the assets, and as you said, let's let's not uh, not consider any of them. They should all be considered and put on the table at the start. How does a brand identify which benefits will and assets will help them reach their objectives before they actually commit to a sponsorship deal? What should they be asking for from a rights holder? What should they be keeping an eye out for? Because I'm curious if it's something that you think or see brands discussing behind closed doors and then sharing what they think with a rights holder? Or is it really an open discussion and a bit of a work in progress before you commit to a sponsorship deal? It's, uh, it's it's um, it's never that open because you're, you're what's at stake there is millions of dollars in in a rights fee. So it's always an exercise and back and forth. And the data you get from your rights holder is not necessarily the data you might get from your media team. So do you declare that to the rights holder? Are you transparent about that? You probably are when it's in your favour to do so, and it, it will benefit you in the negotiation of that fee. So yeah, it's a bit of a standoff I guess in terms of that negotiation phase is very much dependent on the numbers on the table against viewers engagement the numbers that come from the rights holder may be slightly different to those you get from the media team so that's a really valuable tool to have in the negotiation but you know ultimately yes you work together very closely uh, with each other but it's about having the most current and the most accurate data source to arm yourself with that conversation because that early conversation about what am I going to pay for that rights over a two-year period is is the one chance you get to uh, negotiate the biggest number at stake. So it's a really important conversation and it's very much about having uh, the data to support your, your negotiation point. You talk about having access to data and using it to negotiate some of those points and I think it is an important thing to note that or, or bring to the front of the conversation that it's not just rights holders that can measure a sponsorship brands obviously do as well and 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 there is can be a lot of crossover in what they are measuring and of course it's all well and good to tell brands that they should be measuring their sponsorship and obviously they should but how much responsibility do you think falls to the rights holder and who should actually lead or own it? Because if, if you have a spectrum with the rights holder at one end and the brand at the other end, is there two marks on that spectrum or is there some crossover or is there just one mark and it leans more to the rights holder or leads more to the brand? Look, it's very much in the rights holder's best interest to be giving current data and, and show the value of the product they just sold. So, you know, a good, a good rights holder will do that. Um, They'll be very transparent in the reporting and they'll do so regularly. They'll work, or they'll work closely with the agencies or partners or the brand themselves to um, give visibility on that. Transparency is key and then being reactive on uh, those results is, is also important. If it's working, then great. How can we improve it? If it's not working, then you know how do we fix and resolve it? So having that transparency is is, is really key. But I think the honest should sit on the, the brand to make sure that they're the ones driving that it's important to make sure that the, the data they have access to is, is accurate and is, uh, is, is realistic to what's, what's happening. And that, that onus, I think, really should sit on the, the brand. And while a good rights holder will come to the table, the brand is the one that's, that's driving that. So they've got to be on working with the media team, with the PR team, with the digital team to really get a read on the performance and uh, get a, a clear snapshot of the campaign performance. So. Yeah, to answer your question, I think it, I think it's a combination, but ultimately should be driven by the, the brand or, or the agency leading it. Some great advice so far. I think we've covered off the major points of setting out the objectives and the KPIs and and measurement of sponsorship. Let's take a look at how best practice 
plays out. Can you outline an example of how a sponsorship occurred where measurement was set at the start, agreed by all, managed and reported on well throughout, and how that generally played out for the good of all parties? Yeah, look, I can I can talk quite broadly about the recent performance of the Straight Open for Kia, which is a, a huge piece of work for us, one which we've we just come off the back of the, the RAP report yesterday, and, and you probably would have seen in the media that the uh, ad news presented on the Roy Morgan data that I think the headline was Kia owns the Australian Open, um, and that, that came down to a collaboration between numerous stakeholders to to work together to deliver an improvement on last year and the year before that. We're always, we're always striving for, for better and better performance, and we have the benefit of being this for several years, and that means it's, it's, it's easier to get the most out of the, the agencies involved and the teams involved because we have learnings that will inform us on um, what worked in previous years and, and what hasn't worked for this year it was very much about how do we leverage a single creative proposition through one of the biggest sponsorship properties um, in the country which was the Kia Serato GT campaign the Get Mean campaign campaign that you may have seen in the bubble line and doing so through um, a sponsorship property but working in all of the assets available to us through the rights holder and then also all of the assets that, that we can control as the agency all of our digital activity the out-of-home, everything performing succinctly to deliver a real clear message and doing so through the passion point of, of tennis. So from a measurement point of view, you know, I can't talk to metrics too deeply, but we had obviously the, the results from last year. You know, you spoke about the challenges of going into a partnership for the first year. We had the benefit of lots of years to compare um, engagement and all of the, the data that sits around that. And allow that to guide us as we go through the season to then finally go like how do we perform at the end what was the what was the end result and the the results at the end very much speak for themselves where the sentiment was that we absolutely dominated that activity and that was that was done through really thinking about how do we leverage those assets in a, in a intelligent way and think think differently not just here's an asset that's um, delivered to us out of the box but how can we work with, say, the media team and Channel 9 to not just deliver bumpers that people are used to seeing, but doing so in a way that's dynamic and um, ladders back up to the creative, thinking about camera angles and the 360 camera you might have seen in broadcast as well. So how do you, how do you place the, the viewer at the centre and make their experience better? So the 360 camera angle was one that was owned by Kia that delivers the, the brand and the message, but does so in a way that's, that gives back to the viewer and is, is, is engaging. So all of those ways, all of those tactics ladder up to an improvement in the last year and and, um, and increase on your, your metric overall. So for us, we're really proud of that. We'll be going to this year's planning probably next week thinking about how can we do that better and how can we take those learnings and use this current benchmark to elevate that for 2020. Ian, how does a rights holder manage a sponsor who's maybe they're really keen to sponsor, but they just won't engage, they're just not interested in setting any specific goals and objectives which a rights holder would then measure against? Do they, the rights holder, do they just go with the flow and hope that they don't get that dreaded phone call or email where they say, look, we just don't think this is really working for us and our marketing or, and knowing that that is a risk or should they force the issue, grab it by the scruff of the neck and, and try and take control? And and if so, how do they do that? I think that could, that's similar to the question we were talking about before with you know, sponsors not measuring the performance of their sponsorship. It's quite rare now. You used to get a chairman hire uh, back in the day where someone high up in the marketing team or head of brand would say, I want to sponsor export because that's my passion and I want to I want to get a box or access the tickets. Um, it it kind of does very occasionally happen. It's happened once in my career where we've had that and we've had to really drive the importance of measurement and extracting the most from this, this investment. But to be honest, it's, it's, it's actually an opportunity for the rights holder and for the agency to be driving that conversation and showing how they can add value to that investment so it can be a case of showing them how to leverage the assets and and, um, approach it with a degree of business sense and if that's not apparent to the brand then that's the owners and agency and the rights holder to show how that should be done so i'd say it's an opportunity and if anything you should be looking back on that as a rights holder and going what did i do to to drive them to lead them to hold their hand in that process to the point where 
we've developed trust and built a relationship with the brand so that next year when it comes to signing again, they go, actually, that performed way better than we thought it did because we didn't have any expectation. And yes, we want to sign again. So I think it's an opportunity, if anything. As we talk to rights holders and brands as well, day-to-day as we travel around the world, we see lots of different sponsorship reports. What do you think makes a good sponsorship measurement report? What are the elements that are important? Well, as I said, we mentioned before about the the benefits of uh, the digital landscape and the metrics available to us. So that means you can be very live. It means you can draw on data uh, very quickly and very easily. I think the key to that is deciphering um, or creating a system whereby you can decipher that data, what's important, what's not, presenting in a way that's easy to digest. So a good report should be, it shouldn't be a plethora of spreadsheets and, and numbers. It, it should be something that's um, clear and concise. And I think the onus for that is, is usually on the agency. What we do is try and create a dashboard for our brands, and that dashboard draws on our media metrics, our social um, activity if, if we've got a social component to the campaign we can even track experiential and um, we use, we use it's, it's effectively a wi-fi box you know experiential activity that allows you to track passers-by by pinging their phone it's it, it doesn't it doesn't take any data it just measures whether that's a unique impression or not by um recognizing the phone and that gives you a, a metric around dwell time how long does that person spend in that space are they a unique person? Have they been here before? And that's really, really interesting from a, um, when you come back to then go, okay, was that experiential activity worthwhile? It's quite an interesting conversation around that. For, for the first time, experiential has become measurable. For a long time, it was seen as a bit of a, a blind investment. We never knew if, if uh, that was going to translate to sales. Now you can start to track that. So I think good sponsorship measurement does allow you to have a close eye on the important numbers allows you to have a read on what's going on at any given time but present in a way that's that's really easy to easy to digest because the chances are that's going up to CFO who has limited time um, to to digest that so you want to make sure it's it's palatable for them but dashboards are a great way to do that and we're seeing that more and more in the industry. We know that rights holders are there to help activate sponsorships that support a brand's wider marketing and business objective. So sponsorship is just one strategy within a wider marketing plan. A rights holder can get tight on what they need to deliver and they can measure it well and they can report on it well and they can have a a really good, strong, open, collaborative relationship with a brand. But do you think that they should stop there at the border of sponsorship or do you think that they should be actively talking with their sponsors and, and those brands more deeply, so not maybe so superficially? I'm not sure that's actually the right word, but speaking to them about how their wider marketing is performing and what they're tracking and measuring because for me the danger is that the rights holder can operate in a silo and they can become isolated they're not involved in wider marketing conversations and that can possibly jeopardize a sponsorship somewhere down the line yeah it can you're right and i think it's important that you do have a close relationship there i mean a really good rights holder will have their eye on a brand's broad objectives before you even get to uh, negotiation, a really good rights holder will be able to offer up those assets. We spoke about cherry picking assets. We'll be able to, to have a read on what might work for a brand before they even get to the conversation around talking about the deal. So that shows proactivity, and I think that's an opportunity for rights holders to is to really think about okay, what 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 can I offer this particular brand, not just what's the off off the shelf product. And again, I think as I touched on the big codes, do that really really well. They, they recognize that as a sales opportunity, that if you have your your eye on your uh, your client's business, then you're in a better position to make a recommendation on which assets will suit them better. So I think it's important for them to be collaborative and not to work in silos. That being said, I don't think it's necessarily the rights holder's place to be thinking about the broader marketing activity in a, in a practical sense. It's just more, how can I add value what, and, and being aware, I suppose, and then being prepared to be flexible and, and be reactive is also important. Ian, fantastic chat. Some awesome insights and advice there for the listeners. If people want to get in contact with you and learn more about InOcean Worldwide and the work that you do, what can they do? They can send me an email, 
My email address is ian.davidson at inotion.com.au. Outstanding. Ian Davidson, Head of Events and Sponsorship at Inotion Worldwide. Thank you so much for taking us inside Sponsorship Measurement. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you aren't now convinced of the importance of measurement in sponsorship, then I just guess you never will. Thanks again to Ian for finding some time in his busy schedule for us. Some amazing stories, as well as insights into how to set objectives and goals and measure them the right way. If you'd like to connect with Ian or find out more about Inotion Worldwide, then just head along to the show notes at coresoftware.com, K-O-R-E software.com, where you'll find them under the podcast tab in the main menu. That's a wrap for episode 68 of Inside Sponsorship. I hope you enjoyed the show. And just like Paul and Cameron, I'd love to hear from you and give you a shout out on the next episode episode as well as hear any ideas you have for topics and guests if you want to connect with me you can do so on linkedin just search for daniel oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on twitter using the handle at sponserve and if you want to connect with core software's commercial manager australasia daniel ferguson hill you can catch him on daniel.ferguson at k-o-r-e software.com or you can just search for him on linkedin as well Don't forget, you can follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.